0: Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Our guest today is Brian Cunningham. He's the first executive director of the University of California at Irvine's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute, and a leading international expert on cybersecurity law and politics. And he's also a former White House advisor and lawyer, and a media commentary on cybersecurity. Brian Cunningham has extensive experience in senior U.S. government intelligence, and law enforcement positions during the George W. Bush administration. He served as deputy legal advisor to then national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. He also served six years in the Clinton administration as a senior CIA officer and a federal prosecutor. Moreover, he drafted significant portions of the Homeland Security Act. He was a principal contributor to the first national strategy to secure cyberspace, worked closely with the 9-11 Commission, and provided legal advice to the president and other senior government officials on intelligence, terrorism, cybersecurity, and related matters. Cunningham's a founding partner of a law firm based in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. His law practice has included assisting Fortune 500 and multinational companies to comply with legal re- uh, regulations. He was a founding vice chair of the American Bar Association's Sa- Cyber Security Privacy Task Force and was awarded the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement for his work on information issues. Cunningham has served on the National Academy for Sciences committee for sciences committee on biodefense analysis and is overall a long-term government employee working in defense and intelligence industries. government sector of the industry. Um, Brian, welcome to Outside In. It's really an honor to have you with us, and, and I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I, I want to start our questioning, if you will with kind of a, a softball question, but an important one for clearing for our audience knowing the ballpark on which we're, in which we're playing. What is cyberspace and what is cybersecurity?
1: Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be back in Colorado, where I spent about a third of my adult life, and two years at uh, CU. So it's great to be back. If you ask 10 cybersecurity engineers what cybersecurity is, you'll get 10 different answers. But in my view, it's measures that are taken to detect and mitigate and prevent threats to information and infrastructure that is hosted in a computer or an electronic device or on the World Wide Web. And cyberspace is the non physical but very real domain that includes every device that's connected to the World Wide Web, to the internet, and communicates with other devices. So not only what people usually think of as cyberspace, their phones and their home computers and their cloud storage on Amazon or Apple or whatever, but also the now hundreds of thousands and soon to be trillion devices that are connected to the internet that really have no interaction with humans, such as smart refrigerators, smart cars, uh, the Nest thermometers that you might have in your home, all of that as part of cyberspace. And from a military and defense standpoint, it's actually been designated by the United States and other countries as a new battle domain, a new battlefield. Uh, The battlefields were land, sea, and air, and space, and now there's a fifth one, cyberspace.
0: What does the impact of the military designating cyberspace as an area of major concern have for us as individual people?
1: I think it's a little bit too early to say. What we know is that other nations, military and intelligence services, principally China, Russia, Iran, and others, North Korea, target individuals and companies in the United States as though they were enemy countries. So they're committing, in effect, espionage and military activity against Google, against Amazon, against North Korea. There was a famous 2014 North Korean attack on Sony. And so In some ways, the types of attacks that are launched by other militaries are no different than the types of attacks that are launched by criminals. They want to break into your computer. They want to get control over your information. They want to be able to use the computing power that's in your phone and your computer and your smart refrigerator to launch attacks. In terms of the U.S. military designating cyberspace as a new battle domain, it probably will not have a lot of effect on individuals in the United States unless we get into an actual shooting war where another country or countries are at war officially with the United States and they then feel legally entitled to attack all of our critical infrastructure. And there have been recent news reports that Iran and Russia, among others, have already laid the groundwork to do that. They've already put malware and electronic backdoors into many elements of our power grid and other parts of our critical infrastructure, presumably with the ability to, at least metaphorically, one mouse click uh, and attack those facilities in the future.
0: So then on an individual level, you personally, me personally, any one of our listeners personally, how are we threatened by that use of cyberspace?
1: Well, again, if if there's an actual war where a foreign government feels entitled to attack any part of the U.S. infrastructure, they will certainly attack Google and Amazon and Microsoft and the power grid and the, and the financial system. So individuals may get caught up in that, and it could be just inconvenient. You might lose your Amazon account for a couple of days, or you might lose your power, or you might have enemy countries or criminals, even in peacetime as we are now, as I said, they break into devices, they take them over, and you don't know it has happened. And that's not just or even primarily to get your information, although it's partly that. It's more to take advantage of the power of your devices and use those devices to attack other targets. So,
0: quote, they, close quote, can do that to us. Can we do that to them?
1: Well, most of the answers to that question would be classified, and I haven't had a top-secret security clearance since about 2007. So, A, I couldn't talk about it, and B, my knowledge is quite out of date. However, based on publicly available information, I think there's a consensus that the United States Defense Department and intelligence agencies are the best in the world still at all types of cyber espionage and cyber attack, they're outnumbered. So, the number of hackers, if you will, in China that answer to their military and conduct attacks on their behalf, 1,000 to 2,000 times more than how many people we have doing that. But it's pretty much agreed that our skill set is better than anyone else in the world. That could change. They're, it's basically an open secret because the Obama administration confirmed it that the United States and Israel launched an attack on the Iranian nuclear weapons facility uh, called, you hear this attack called Stuxnet. This was malware that was inserted into that facility that caused their centrifuges that make uranium to spin at the wrong speed and presumably uh, hurt their capability to build nuclear weapons. So that's one example, which the U.S. has all but officially acknowledged that we did. I certainly hope that our military and our intelligence services are taking advantage of this capability to position the United States better in a national security context than we would be if we didn't have the capability.
0: I'm sure that brings comfort to many of our listeners. And, and uh, what I am now going to ask about something that may make us all a little uncomfortable, and, and that is if we have the ability to engage in cyber warfare, with quote-unquote our enemies, does that mean that the government also could wage that war on us as U.S. citizens?
1: Well, there's two answers to that question. Under all the laws that govern our intelligence services and our military, They are not permitted, with a few exceptions, to operate inside the United States. In other words, there's, for example, a law called the Posse Comitatus Law, which prohibits the U.S. military from taking action against U.S. persons unless they are, in effect, soldiers of a foreign government. So, for example, the Obama administration launched missile strikes on at least two Americans and killed them. And that was permissible under the laws of armed conflict and under our laws because those two individuals had declared themselves members of al-Qaeda and were actively seeking to attack the United States. But generally speaking, it's not permitted to use military intelligence capabilities against Americans, again, with some exceptions. Now, having said that, some of the activities that the government either does or authorizes will inadvertently affect Americans. example, Microsoft has filed a number of lawsuits in federal courts in the United States in which they allege that sometimes identified, sometimes unidentified adversaries have taken over uh, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of computers using Microsoft software to do that. So they go into court, judge issues a court order which says, these foreign enemies have to stop doing that. But of course, you're never going to get any of them into court. Sometimes we don't even know who they are. So the court then authorizes Microsoft on behalf of the court to take action to, in effect, attack those computers that have this software in that are being used for bad purposes and kill that software. Now, In many cases, these are hundreds of thousands or even millions of machines, and Microsoft doesn't know who they are or sometimes even where they are. So it's quite possible that many of us have been victims, if you will, of a cyber attack authorized by our court system carried out by an American company. But this was entirely legal because it was authorized by a court, and probably if Microsoft did their job right, We don't even know it happened.
0: I want to go a little further with this question. Um, when, When the administration, any administration, but now we're under Trump, so under the Trump administration, if they want information on you or me or any individual, given my very rudimentary understanding of cyber they could get information on us individually at any point in time is that right
1: it's at a, least it's a more technically? complex yeah it's a more complex question than it sounds Th- that certainly the intelligence community and the law enforcement community in the United States have tools that can be used to break into certain computer systems and sometimes they don't So a famous example is in the wake of the San Bernardino terrorist attacks, the uh, police got a hold of the phone of one of the dead terrorists and the FBI asked Apple to break into that phone to give them information that might help them prevent future terrorist attacks. And you'll recall that Apple refused and there was a big court fight and ultimately the FBI figured out another way to get that information. So there's a technical question and there's a legal question technically, yeah, the law enforcement and intelligence agencies have a lot of capability to turn their guns, if you will, domestically on Americans to collect information as opposed to their normal collection targets, which are overseas. But legally, they can't do that unless they have proper authorization from a court in most circumstances. So under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, if the government wants to collect the content of your communications, whether it's a phone call or an email or a text message or whatever, they have to go to a federal judge and get a warrant. And actually, the zone of privacy for Americans, where the government cannot intrude without a warrant, is being widened, which probably will surprise a lot of listeners, given that we have a very conservative Supreme Court. It surprises me. Yeah. Well, this Supreme Court Nine to zero, I think, or maybe seven to two, a majority that included some of the conservatives ruled in the last month in a case called Carpenter that if the government wants to get your location records from your phone, so not the words you said, not the messages you sent, not the text messages, those are all, we knew all those required a warrant. But to even get your location data for 30 or 60 days or whatever, now the government has to go to court to get a warrant. So the Supreme Court has basically been uninvolved for about 30 years in any internet-related privacy decisions. And all of a sudden, starting about five years ago, they're now starting to take these cases. And almost without exception, when the Supreme Court, even this Roberts Supreme Court, has got a case that involves the cybersecurity and privacy they have sided with privacy, which probably surprises some people.
0: Indeed. I what, what what prompted these questions is that I I was remembering the civil rights movement and how the FBI in particular infiltrated the civil rights movement um, with with human infiltrators and 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 um, undermined the social movement and served to discredit many many people and killed several people, uh, in, in different parts of that era. And it seems to me that with the technology so very, very, very much more advanced today than it was then, that it is quite feasible that should the government want to limit opposition to it, again, whether Trump or Obama or anybody, that it would allow people freedom of speech, freedom of movement, et cetera, et cetera, until they became very effective in their opposition, and then it might move to discredit and or silence them. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, you're talking about the infamous COINTELPRO operations that primarily the FBI but also the CIA in some cases and domestic local law enforcement conducted up until about the mid-70s. Correct. And all during that time, it was at best unclear and at worst legal for the FBI to infiltrate groups and do those sorts of, we, we would call them covert action propaganda operations. Of course, the most infamous of which is they wiretapped Martin Luther King. Yes. And they sent, and J. Edgar Hoover sent him a letter anonymously saying, you better commit suicide because we're going to release all this stuff. So... In, when the, all those activities came to light in the 70s in the Church Commission, we passed a number of laws that were intended to prohibit that kind of activity. And right now, the CIA and the FBI and all law enforcement intelligence agencies are prohibited by law from doing anything for purposes of political behavior or suppression or interfering with the First Amendment rights. Now, having said that, there's still a lot of gray area about what's legal and what's not. For example, President Obama wiretapped journalists, mm-hmm. went to court, got warrants. Most people believe falsely stated that a Fox News journalist was an agent of a foreign power to get a court to give them a warrant to wiretap that person. They also, as it turns out, were conducting electronic surveillance on a number of tele- public telephones that were in the United States Capitol where reporters were were using them. And so. The short answer is, that kind of activity is illegal. But the slightly longer answer is, if you have an administration that thinks that they're in the right, no political meaning attached to the word right, they may find a way to do it.
0: Do you have any concerns that that administrations are more likely to think that following Obama than others?
1: Well, I you know, I I have about 20 years in government service and I've known thousands of intelligence officers and law enforcement officers and 99.999% of them are honest, straightforward public servants who are giving up a lot of money to from doing other things. I don't think it's very likely that career intelligence officers and law enforcement officers will deliberately and knowingly target political opponents of the current administration. Having said that, again, there's a lot of gray areas there. And if you had a president who really, really wanted to subvert the opposition through electronic means, I think this is the answer to your first question also. There are a lot more powerful and nuanced and secret ways to do it than there were in the 60s and 70s. So it's a risk, but we also have the most robust oversight system in the world, by far more oversight than they have anywhere in Europe with the courts and the Congress.
0: Talking about oversight systems, I'm going to switch our conversation a little bit, um, although I I must admit I'm tempted to continue on the line we were just on. But that said, um, cyberspace is... You know, beside the fact that most of us don't really understand it as as a phenomena and its power as a phenomena and why it's such a national threat potentially, are there regulations about how cyber space is used and how what can be done with cybersecurity internationally? Like there's. An international court of law there's uh, international law of the sea is there something like international law of cyberspace
1: the short answer is it's the wild wild west there's no agreement at all between any significant number of countries in the world that talk about what's permitted in terms of government surveillance and government attack activities what constitutes an act of war in cyberspace. So in other words, how much does Russia have to do to us before we're legally entitled under international law to respond? There's no agreement on that. There's no agreement on how much governments can suppress the political views of their own citizens. So one of the reasons there isn't an international treaty on cyberspace is that Russia and China and other countries believe that part of their legitimate, legal authority as a government is to block information that's negative to their political views and to prevent their citizens from putting information into the internet that is detrimental to the government. So Western countries, the United States- Is that different from the US? Yes, completely different. Because first of all, we just have 200 plus years of norms that we don't do that. But more importantly, we have the First Amendment. And so- this actually creates some really interesting problems. So most people generally think that Europeans are more privacy friendly than the United States. There's a lot of reasons why I don't believe that's true, but the one great example here is the Europeans have a, a human right that they have passed into law called the right to be forgotten. And what that says is that Google, Amazon, et cetera, the, the the companies that control what information is findable on the internet, If I am a Spanish citizen, and I went bankrupt 10 years ago, and I don't want anybody to know that, I can go and get a court order directing Google to what they call de-index that, make it not findable on the internet. Hmm. Well, in the United States, that would be impossible, because that's a direct violation of the First Amendment. So that's another reason why we can't really get good international agreements, because even among our friendly countries, even among other Western democracies, they don't have the First Amendment, and, and, and that's a huge difference. And it it creates a lot of issues in terms of international agreements.
0: Okay, so it's the wild, wild west, yeah. and and I heard that clearly. Um, let me – we have, I don't know, five, six minutes left. Um, let me ask you about some of the current events in cyberspace. Um no shortage? There, there is no shortage. Um, just this week, somehow or other, we got involved with Iran, or Iran threatened us cyberly. Is that a word, cyberly?
1: Just and, made one.
0: And um, uh, China is known to have been involved with cyber attacks in one form or another. And most pointedly, um, Russia has been meddling in our elections. And although the president of the United States denies that or will not recognize that, it seems to me among your former colleagues and and the entire intelligence community, at least that that goes public, is saying there's no doubt about it. So my question is, number one, do you think they did? Number two, what then is the chances of them doing so in 2018 and in the 2020 elections?
1: I think the chances of Russia and China and other foreign adversaries and potentially terrorist groups and others deliberately targeting our election system, our system of democracy, is 100%. I promise you they're doing it now. They're probably doing it down to the level of congressional races, which is probably more than they did in 2016. And as you suggest, we are doing absolutely nothing to deter them. And if there's one thing that's certain about a bully like Putin, who's a former KGB colonel, he will take every single inch of space that you give him. And I hope that somehow in secret, we have done something in cyberspace to demonstrate to Russia that if they screw around with the 2018 and 2020 elections there will be severe consequences but i don't think we have
0: what what will we what would those consequences be let's say russia doesn't admit it we find out that they did what 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 are our responses likely to be what can we do
1: well i won't spend much time on the the overt diplomatic potential measures because that's not really my area but obviously we could m- create much more strong sanctions against Russia, even though the current sanctions in place are the strongest that there have ever been. We could, for example, ship a lot more domestic natural gas to Europe, which would really cripple Russia because that's how they make most of their money. But in my area of expertise in cyberspace, there's all kinds of things that I believe we could do. And again, these things would be classified and I don't know about them, so I'm speculating. But I would be surprised if we didn't have the capability uh, to reach into, say, Putin's bank accounts and make them disappear, or to make the lights flicker in Moscow for a couple of hours just to demonstrate that we can, or to— why, why
0: haven't we done that already since we know for sure they have attacked us?
1: Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and it actually does cross administration. So obviously the Obama administration knew that the Russians were— Doing, They they had a pretty good idea of everything that they were doing, which is demonstrated by the fact that in January 2017, they published a whole paper. So they obviously had the information. Uh, There's a few reasons. One is, again, there's just no agreement or definition on how much cyber activity and what kind is enough to warrant a cyber response. The second reason, I think, that Obama didn't do anything is they were 100% certain, like every pollster was, that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and they didn't want to be seen as doing anything that could be viewed as tipping the scales. In the case of President Trump, I'm not a psychologist, but the persuasive reasoning I've heard from people that have more expertise in that area than I do is that he cannot separate in his mind the fact of the Russians deliberately trying to interfere in our democratic process with the legitimacy of his own election. So he feels that if he gives an inch, I'm speculating based on what I've heard and read, if he gives an inch, then he's, in effect, delegitimizing his own presidency. Now, having said all that, and I'm no fan of the current administration, they actually have been tougher on Russia than any other administration since Reagan. In terms of sanctions, in terms of giving offensive weapons to the Ukrainians, in, in lots of ways, our actions as a government don't match the president's rhetoric, which is good, in my opinion. But on this issue of trying to deter Russia from messing around, I don't think the commander-in-chief will give the order because he'll think that means he wasn't legitimately elected.
0: Very interesting. I, I We only have a couple of seconds left, but to what extent do you sense Russia is having impact on the elections of other democracies, and particularly democratic republics?
1: Well, they're certainly trying. And by the way, I should mention for your your listeners who may not know this, Russia has been doing this since 1916. They did it when they were the Soviet Union, and they've been interfering in Western elections to the extent they could ever since. The big difference is now with social media and cyberspace, they, they can do it a lot more effectively. They definitely try to interfere in France, the Netherlands, Germany. Anywhere that Putin can create a result that sends a signal that Western democracy doesn't work, he'll do it.
0: Brian Cunningham, cybersecurity expert, I certainly thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT, hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.